He is an absolute genius and we are so grateful to have him here. And we are really excited about this chat. Thank you so much, Jamie, take it away. Right, a little bit more intimate panel. Trevor's somebody I've been trying to meet in IRL for seven years, more. Probably four years. We connected on Twitter for some time and a real OG in the space. So excited to talk. And of course, Tina, bringing a slightly different perspective to the space. So it's going to be interesting to hear different perspectives, one as an artist, one as a curator, your kind of personal journeys into the space. And I know that many people in the audience are going to want to understand the blueprint for success. You know, you're both very well-known, high-profile, successful people in the space. So is there a blueprint? I, I suspect Trevor's, Trevor's got a blueprint. And if not, what's the tools, what's the mindset that people can bring to space, what's different? But before we go into all that, let's just start about your personal journey. Very quick introduction to who you are and I guess what you're doing now, and then we can go a little bit more into how you got here. So Tina. Hello, everyone. My name's Tina Ziegler. I have been a contemporary art curator for 20 years, the creative director and the curator of Moniker International Art Fair. I also founded Avata, which is a digital art and fashion platform. And I'm working to really bring really profile artists across the digital art and the traditional art space and bring some really quality curation to this Web3 movement and consistently trying to profile artists from around the world. My name is Trevor Jones. I'm an artist. I graduated from Edinburgh College of Art in Scotland in 2008. I was 38 years old, so they were already calling me Grandpa Jones back then. But I found out very quickly that it was very difficult to make a living as an artist. And the fact that I was coming up to approaching 40 soon after graduating, I had to figure out a way to, to actually make a living, to pay the bills. And so it's been a long journey. I was one of the first painters in the world to use augmented reality. I started painting QR codes in 2011, 2013. I discovered augmented reality way before Pokemon. From that point, I was becoming more and more distant from the legacy art world because they were not interested in what I was doing. And I eventually landed into crypto in 2017. And it's been uh, life-changing, let's say the least. So maybe just Trevor, back to you first. We kind of come at this from the artist perspective. And actually, it's interesting. You would have thought this was planned. You both have a history in innovating with different technologies. I know, Tina, you've been doing a lot of stuff with AR and VR as well. So as an artist, how do you identify or how did you previously identify? Did you identify as a digital artist because you were experimenting with these things? Like I said, it was 2008 when I graduated. So I was coming up to a, a solo show, a solo exhibition. And about a month before my show opened, I started seeing QR codes around in uh, mid-2011. And I immediately thought, what are these things? How can I use them as promotional ways, techniques to figure out, to get information to, to viewers, to people interested in the art? But before the exhibition even opened, I was already looking at learning how to paint these QR codes and building websites with a friend to create digital windows that were connected through my paintings. So 
although I consider myself a traditional artist, an oil painter, I'm not a techie guy, but I'm fascinated with the integration of technology. So I would not say I'm a digital artist. I'm a traditional artist who will work with other people and collaborate to create um, new stories, new ideas, and to get the information and the art across in new, new platforms, new ways. So there maybe is an extension to that. So when I came across you on Twitter, it was when you were doing, I guess, what you would classify as crypto art. Other people would classify as crypto art. It's some of the first art that was referencing crypto culture in all of its forms. And, you know, perhaps in, in my mind, the most famous one was the John McAfee one with the, the gun to his head, which was a very polarizing figure. So what was it that drew you to, to crypto? I know you got exposure to Bitcoin, you bought some Bitcoin, but when did it click to you that this was a, as much a cultural thing as it was a technological thing or something about money? So in 2016, I had a solo show called Don't Lie to Me. It was a political show, augmented reality, portraits of political leaders. And surprisingly, everything sold. There was 10, 10 portraits. Uh, one buyer bought everything. I had, for the first time, a bit of money, a little bit of money. And that took me to buying, investigating ways to invest, and which led me to Bitcoin in June 2017. So long story short, like everybody who's been wrecked in this space, I invested my meager life savings into cryptocurrency. I became a phenomenally terrible trader. I initially made a lot of money in the bull run of 2017. And I was thinking, holy crap, I can actually make a living as a trader and then I can still paint and hopefully sell something. That would have been so boring if you'd done that. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't. It was so glad uh, you lost all your money. I lost everything. And uh, yeah, I tell the story often and my, my wife's right there. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was, you know, completely stressed for about seven months, but that was a 2017. By the end of 2017, I was rolling in, in the crypto and I was already contemplating an exhibition of crypto themed paintings. I was looking online. I was, you know, checking every day, you know, artists, crypt creating crypto-themed paintings, galleries showcasing crypto art, and I couldn't find anything anywhere. I found quite amateurish spray-painted Bitcoins and stuff like that, but there wasn't really any fine art uh, that was crypto-related. So at that time, like I said, I had crypto in the bank, and I think I can invest a year of my time painting this ex towards this exhibition, hire the exhibition space, and see what happens. Unfortunately, the bear market hit the crypto bloodbath early, well, 18, 19. Yeah, 2000, so January 2018, just as I was basically putting this whole thing together. And in six months, I lost everything, but I was already fully invested in this concept of a crypto themed fine art exhibition in a gallery that I hired myself. What was interesting is that about three months before the show opened, I sold one of the pieces through Twitter. And, and then another piece sold. And then I was getting more interest. And it was anonymous collectors around the world who were paying for this, these paintings, oil paintings in Bitcoin or Ethereum. And I had to tell them like, look, I can't give you the painting. They sent me the Bitcoin. I will send you the painting after the exhibition in October in three months. I basically sold everything at the show to all these random people. 
And that's kind of when the, the penny dropped. It was like, okay, there actually is a market. There are people around the world who are willing to pay money for artwork. And also what was really fascinating was that I didn't go through a commercial gallery. You know, there was normally in the traditional art world, collectors will go through a gallery because they trust the gallery. These people didn't know who I was. They had, they had no idea. All they knew was, here's a guy who has a website who here's my, my, my paintings and I will send you lots of Bitcoin for it. And it was just it was very surreal. I could not get my head around it. And that's kind of how I got into the whole space. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Those that went through that 17, 18, 19 cycle, you know, really NFTs with anything that was really going on, it was anything that stayed around and it was very much a subculture of crypto that kind of carried on using the technology, experimenting when it wasn't really all, all about the money. Of course, it later became a little bit about the money, but back then it was a really niche group of people. It was interesting that it sustained during that bear market when nobody else was really interested in the secondary markets. But it's a good segue into galleries and curation. Be good to learn a little bit more about your journey into, into Web3, but then also to understand what's changed. So what is the role of a curator or curation? Is it an individual and a community or is it a hybrid of, of the two? But before we go into that, just a little bit about your journey from the other side of the table, I guess. Yeah, um, I, I've been interested in kind of alternative ways to do anything in my whole career. So as soon as I started to learn about Bitcoin and alternative currencies in 2014, I was introduced to a group actually that just celebrated their 10-year anniversary here called CoinScrum. And I sat around this table in East London with a bunch of crypto guys and they couldn't even afford coffee, but they could pay me in Bitcoin, right? So that's when I first set up, I didn't, one of the CoinScrum guys set up my crypto wallet and paid me for these coffees in Bitcoin. And that was really my beginning entrance into this whole space. We worked with them to bring the first Bitcoin ATM machine into an art fair. So in 2015, Moniker was the first fair in the world to have a Bitcoin ATM. And it was really exciting. And the people that use that ATM are probably just like over the moon now because a lot of people thought we were crazy, right? But we, I really was started to get into, into that, into, into AR, into VR, and just anything that was a disruptor, right? Because I'm not a traditional art curator in any sense. I don't have an art history degree. I'm completely self-taught. I've been working my ass off since I was 13. And I have been consistent in doing that, in spotlighting the underdog, spotlighting artists that don't get recognition, and just constantly trying to go against the traditional grain. So, you know, for me, getting into Web3 was a no-brainer because it was a complete disruptor. And it's a group of outsiders, typically, right? It's people that, you know, are not in the system. They're on the outside of it looking... Yeah, they were originally. I mean, we still are disruptors, but the audience is much bigger than that, you know, table 10 years ago with a bunch of weirdos. So I've been, you know, actively kind of looking at that space. And, you know, I had I was really into it then and then I fell out of it. And then I totally forgot I had a crypto wallet in 2018 and I opened it up and I was relatively surprised about how much money was in there from coffees that I bought for people. So, you know, I think 
that's kind of my intro. But COVID was really the reason I got into it as much as I am into it now, because I was running a traditional art fair where we had physical events. And of course, all of those got canceled. So I had to look for different ways to engage with my artists, to engage with my collectors, and just to be an observer of a cultural shift that was happening. So, you know, as we were all at home and we were all wondering what the hell was going to happen with the world, many people became creative and many people looked for alternative ways to connect. And that's really why I think we're all here right now. So it's, you know, for me, it was just a natural progression. And from a curatorial perspective, I always am trying to look at what's going on culturally and how can I tell that story through art experience and engagement. So now, you know, it's two years of looking at this new space, trying to get my head around it, not really taking much action. I mean, I did follow Trevor and his work and I was observing the different artists and I was observing a lot of artists that I thought were absolute shit making a lot of money. And I, you know, I was constantly questioning what is going on? Like, what is this? What happened to all the theory and the art history and the, you know, the process that we were used to from the traditional art world? It was completely dismantled. The system was falling apart before our eyes, this traditional art system, right? So it was exciting, but then I wanted to come into this space and not be a gatekeeper because that's definitely not the role of the curator in any way, but to bring some thought into how do we display this work? How do we create engaging experiences for more people to experience it? Because we constantly think about democratizing the art world and making it accessible. Web3 is so not accessible. So we have so much work to do right now to widen this conversation and not constantly speak in silo. And that's what the role of the curator is, is to tell those stories, to make things digestible and to package something up so more people can engage with it. And it doesn't just get shown in the same galleries or in the same museums or sold to the same collectors. Like it's our responsibility to open up the conversation. So there's kind of two parts to that, right? On the one hand, I think we're all hoping that NFTs, for example, are a mainstream medium. They could be applied visual arts, they could be applied to music, they could be applied to whatever. And as a toolkit can enable greater kind of financial freedom for creators, full stop. How important, I'm going to ask you actually, um, Trevor, how important do you think it is that we understand the crypto art movement in the journey and evolution of NFTs as a medium before it mainstreams? Or is, is that already over? And it's already, already mainstreaming and it's going to be forgotten. That's a very good question. Right now, I came down from, from Scotland to NFT London and I organized exhibition for a good friend of mine called A Lot of Money. You might know him, Philippe Fateau, who passed away from cancer in March of this year. And he was one of the OGs. He was the one who was really building the space. His artwork and his his philosophy and his hilarious attitude. He was ridiculous. He was from, from Marseille, France. He was a genuine character. He brought people together. He brought the best out of people and he made the, the most amazing art. And he, now he's, he's dead. People say, well, it's on the blockchain, but 
you need people to bring to keep it alive. And so, you know, I'll give you an example. I was at Bitcoin Miami uh, in March this year. I was also in Bitcoin San Francisco in 2019. And that was like the olden days when there was literally like 12 artists and we were like sticking our art onto shitty concrete walls and nobody would look at it. And now they probably wish they bought it. But fast forward post-COVID or 2022 in Miami and the whole platform changed. The, the space was massive. There was a gallery of about 100 artists. They gave me the, the pride of place space right at the very beginning, the entrance. And within that two-year period, nobody knew who I was. There was a young couple who came up to me and they looked at my art and it's clean John McAfee piece. And they said, I really like what you do. I've got somebody who might want to represent you. And this was after my Bitcoin angel drop, literally a year before I made like... Which was a record setting sale. It was like six and a half million or something. It was, it was 4.3 million in a day. I made 3.2 million in seven minutes. It was like record breaking. I'd been like doing a lot of really interesting artwork through 2019, 2020, 2021. And within like six months, Bored Apes, CryptoPunks, and everything changed. And new people came in. They call the 2021 gang. And new, but nobody knew the history. Nobody knew what happened literally six months or a year before. One of ones were a thing for a very long time, right? And all of a sudden, nobody wanted a one-on-one. They're like, well, with a one-on-one, there's a market of two, maybe. There's one, one collector and maybe one buyer. Yeah. I want a 10,000 PFP. I mean, that's the one thing, the one consistent in the space is that it's always changing. You know, you never know. People ask me, you know, what do you think is going to be happening in a year from now? I have no fucking idea. Literally, it's, it's ridiculous. But as Dina was saying, it's consistency. You must stay consistent, always create great work, be innovative, be unique. But with regards to your question, it's up to us, you know, the old timers to keep the memories alive of the people who are here and the people who are not and the artwork. And eventually, I think, art history major from, from Edinburgh there will be books written, but we'll see who is actually in the book and who isn't in the book. We'll find out. I have no idea. I did, if anybody's interested, create an audio documentary on the history of NFTs. So if you're interested, you can check my Twitter account. But after that plug, let's kind of carry on around this. So how would you, are you curating this history of NFTs in the context of putting on exhibitions, both balancing, representing existing artists that have made a big contribution, but also leaving the space open enough for it to evolve with the new artists. So a curator, just to be clear, a curator is not a dealer. We don't sell art. We don't, that's not our intention. Our intention is to tell stories through bringing artists together. And like you said, kind of bring Bring a moment to, to what's happening from a cultural movement or spotlight a moment from a kind of trend in the market and just bring some context around something. And that's really our role as a curator. So it's natural for me to want to progress into digital art curation. And now that we have spaces like W1 and OuterNet and these facilities that actually allow us to have digital art shows because, you know, fast, you know, Go back five years, it was very hard to find any gallery that had 
screens in it. So there's this whole new thing we have to look at as curators is what is the experience like for this new emerging group of people that are interested in digital art? How are they going to experience digital art off their phones and off their computers? So there's a whole new way we need to think about it. And as you experience in here, you might feel a bit dizzy. You might feel a bit sick. Things are moving too quickly. But there is some consideration that needs to go into how we experience digital media, right? So I'm, I've am i done a few exhibitions this year. I've done two shows with Adidas on Oxford Circus. And I really use the traditional methods of curation to produce those exhibitions. The first one was an international women's show. And I spotlighted a lot of women artists from the NFT space and NFT projects like World of Women and Boss Beauties. We worked with a lot of those kind of projects. And then an illustration show. So I try to tell a story through the exhibition and spotlight artists from all over the world. But the most important thing is the space that you're going to experience the art in. Because it's great to have an amazing list of artists, but if the work isn't fit to screen or if it's not the right pixel size or if the bit rate's off, it's not going to be a good experience for the viewer. So as a curator, we have another responsibility now, which is understanding the way that you as the viewer experience the tech and trying to get you to experience it in a comfortable environment that inspires you and is the best representation of the artist's work, right? So a lot of artists work off of computers, they're creating everything on a small screen, and that's very different when you take that file and you try to put it on an LED screen this size. So there's a lot of work to do in this space. There aren't really any courses for it yet. And, you know, we're learning as we go, but it's a really exciting new field for curators to work in. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, even thinking about still the experience of discovering, searching and buying digital art in an NFT context, or even displaying it is still incredibly basic, right? OpenSea is a very limited experience to experience digital art. Similarly, even when you purchased it, well, what are you going to do with it? It's in your wallet. You have to get your phone out. If you want to show anybody, you've got to get your phone out. Maybe you've got some LED screen on in your home or in a um, kind of makeshift gallery. It's a, it's a really poor experience of the potential of uh, digital art. And I know you're also exploring things in AR and VR, which is really exciting. And I definitely encourage you to check out an artist in London who is involved in the UK NFT scene called uh, Mila, who, who does a load of VR experiential art. So Trevor... You were pretty consistent in how you executed your art. You continue to be pretty consistent. But of course, you're not creating in a vacuum. And so you spoke about this period of time when all of a sudden it was all about the PFP, board apes or whatever else. And you could argue that's still happening now, right? It drowns out a lot of art. And I would kind of classify it more as a social media. People are using these things to display belonging and identity. So it's a slightly different function to traditional art. How did you adapt to that? And I know you did a drop. You've now got this castle event that you do to bring your community together. But before we came on the panel, you were talking about that, that kind of pressure that you felt to be an artist in that space, to deliver value to your fans that could be an equivalent to a Bordet type. Again, a good question. 
when the, the Bitcoin angel dropped in February of 2021, so literally less than two years ago, the conversations then were abundance versus scarcity. And it was all about scarcity. It was like, you know, one-on-ones, if you're an artist, make sure you don't drop too much. And I was also part of that because I was a painter. It would take me a long time to create a painting and then an animation and then the, the whole project, the, the drop. I'm not people, I can't create a piece in one hour or two hours. But at the time, once I had that drop, there was 4,158 Bitcoin angels that sold in seven minutes. And I thought, I just ruined my career because there's too many now and nobody will want to buy my work because I've saturated the market. So I was thinking, what can I do to, to navigate through this, to continue to add value? I accidentally made a PFP project, you know, with the, the number of sales. I accidentally created a community around my work. So now there's about two and a half thousand owners of these Bitcoin angels. So I was talking to a, a collector and he just joked. He said, why don't, you know, you live in Scotland. Why don't you have a castle party? And I thought, why not have a castle party? And I would invite all my Bitcoin angel holders. And so that now is becoming an annual event. The first castle party was in July. We hired Sterling Castle. I've got an enormous team of two people. That It was a, an amazing, successful event. Uh, a lot of people, we had about 300 people came from all, all around the world, 22 different countries. And we learned a lot. We've already booked a, a castle in France for next year. So September, first week of September, we've got a three-day, two-night event. Anybody who owns a Bitcoin angel can come to this, uh, this event. Which, it, by the way, are incredibly affordable right now. You're probably never going to get the opportunity to buy one of those at this price again. And I think the important thing is, it's not just a party, right? It's not just a piss up. It's a it, is, it is that. Well, too. it's a piss up, obviously, it's in Scotland. Yeah. But it's also a platform for new artists, right? And you have an interesting model where you're bringing together artists, collectors. and At the same time, I've got a Twitter space called Art Angels NFT. And what I do is I highlight the art of one artist every month. I bring on three collectors, three big collectors, and we have a 60-minute space where the artist and I will talk for about half an hour and then they bring on the collectors. They'll add their you know, opinions, their tips, their advice. It's a good space for other artists around to learn, to, um, to listen to collectors, why they buy, get different opinions. And then also we have an auction on that night that ends one hour after the Twitter space where that artist will sell their, their super rare Genesis drop. And it's been life-changing for a couple artists, at least one from Cuba called Nirard. She sold about six ETH in that primary sale and a bunch of her secondaries. And I had another artist from Colombia who sold over nine ETH in sales from that Art Angels event. And that was like three years salary uh, in one night. And it just, you know, transformed. But also I, I then give them tips, you know, so I, I don't just cut them loose. I do have conversations with these artists and try to help out where I can. But again, it's not just for those artists. It's for everybody who's listening to the space to be able to learn and to, to grow and, and hopefully be successful. I mean, I think that platform or forum to understand why people collect in this space is really important because as you said, the rules are different. 
there's more complexity to why people collect to collect. It's not just because it's sold at a certain price at Sotheby's. It's not just because of a certain aesthetic. Um, and I remember when I came into space as a collector, I was buying initially from the aesthetic that I liked, which were not the things that went on and made a load of money, generally speaking. So, uh, Tina, maybe we've got one more question. So I know you've got an initiative called Avatar, A-V-A-T-A, and that has an IRL component as well. So it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about that. For me, it's always about these physical experiences and these physical moments where we can come together and experience what Web3 is in real life, because it's always coming back like Trevor is doing with his castle parties, which I so want to come to. Bringing people together, and that's the big underlying thing here with Web3 is our amazing community that we have in this room, right? So we need to constantly bring them back. So, I mean, that's a great note to end it on. Thanks to both of my panelists. Big round of applause. Thank you, Jamie. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 